Warning, this podcast contains spoilers. But let's be honest, we all know Ray is the only one who has never seen these movies. In a world of mega blockbusters, one man stands alone. That's me. For nearly 40 years, he has survived on an island of ignorance. Huh? You've laughed, you've cheered, and you've cried. And he has no idea why, if you say so. Today, he is finally rescued, and these movies you know and love will be seen at last. Now, coming to you from Doorknob's Basement Studio, here are your co-hosts, Ray and MJ. Hello there. Welcome to episode one of Seen It Last, a podcast about movies. I'm Ray, and I'm here with my good friend, MJ. Hey there, everyone. We are going to be talking about movies, but Ray, why are we really here? I guess you could say we're really here because there's hundreds of movies out there that undoubtedly you have all seen and that you all love, but there's like one guy out there who hasn't seen them, and that's me. Yeah, so we're going to be giving Ray a bit of an education. What's your first lesson, Ray? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Before we get started, here's a little uh, background on Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was released June 12th, 1981. It had a budget of roughly $18 million and grossed worldwide $390 million. It got a Best Picture nomination and has a IMDb rating of 8.4, Rotten Tomatoes critic score of 95, and audience score of 96. It stars Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, and Paul Freeman. It was originally written by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas while they were vacationing in Hawaii, while George Lucas was trying to avoid the chaos of the release of the first Star Wars movie. So, Ray, why haven't you seen this movie? Well, I mean, in all fairness, it came out before I was born. But besides that fact, I remember not being interested. It seemed like a cheesy thing to me with... I mean, we got this hero that's an archaeologist, and, well, really, an archaeologist? Uh, just come on. Also, the theme song was a little too catchy, and it just, like, wow, that's, it, it seems like it's going to be really cheesy. And I just don't think it was my style of movie that I liked when I was a kid. I didn't think it was going to be funny. It just, I, I did not believe that I would like it, so I never watched it or any of the Indiana Jones movies. How about you? What do you remember from the first time you watched it? Well, I remember watching it for the first time when I was about seven or eight years old. We had rented it on VHS. It was actually my second Indiana Jones movie. I had seen Temple of Doom um, first, but it was Raiders of the Lost Ark that made me fall in love with the character. I even wanted to be him for Halloween one year. I was trying to figure out how I could set up some speakers so that every time I went up to the door and trick-or-treated, it would be all dun-da-dun-dun-dun-da-dun. <laughs> Unfortunately, my mom didn't buy into the idea. But it still carried with me all the way through my childhood. It's really what started my love of movies. And I even uh, was inspired to use my uh, toy auto recorder when I was a kid to record little, uh, you know, radio dramas about, you know, an adventuring archaeologist. That's awesome. Well, maybe next year for Halloween, we can do something like that. Yeah, I can be Indy and you can be Marion. 
All right. That sounds good. You know, do a little gender bending of the roles. Yeah. So are you ready? Before we get started, I have a question. Okay. So I didn't see Samuel L. Jackson in this movie anywhere. Oh, God. Well, there were lots of snakes. There were a few planes. There was even a snake on a plane. But there was no Samuel L. Jackson. What, what's going on with that? Well, how do you know that Snakes on a Plane wasn't inspired by this movie? I guess that could be, huh? Well, why don't we get started on this adventure? And I think the best place to start would be right at the beginning. So first things first, we meet our hero. And what did you say when he was revealed? <laughs> Hello, Han Solo. Of course you did. Yep. Anyway, so we see Indy going into a cave with this not happy looking porter guy. And of course, it's the obligatory dark and spooky cave. And of course, you see cobwebs everywhere, which means there's going to be spiders everywhere. And as it turns out, there's tons of spiders. So I assume you must be referring to that poor porter played by Alfred Molina. Oh, is that who played that guy? Yeah, this is actually his first credited screen role. That spider scene was the very first shot of the very first day of shooting that he was on. Oh, geez, that poor guy. He must have been thinking to himself, what have I got myself into? Especially when you consider they put all the male spiders on first and they just sit there. But as soon as you introduce the female, they start scurrying everywhere. <laughs> Damn, it sounds like real life. Seriously. But what did you think about all those other traps? Well, we find out what happened to the guy who went in there before him and kind of start to get an inkling of why no one's ever come out of there alive. But it's a, it's a weird trap the way that, you know, you walk into the light and then all of a sudden spike trap. I mean, it, it was not the first time I've seen it, but it might have been if I'd watched the movie, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> then we come to the next thing that I thought it was really cool, like... He seemed to know that there was a pressure plate, and he crowbarred it up and then caught the arrow with the torch. Made a cool <laughs> noise. Oh, yeah. That was that was pretty cool. And then I was confused. I, I remember watching him, like, grab the sand and put it into the bag, and I was like, what, what, is, he, what is he doing that for? Oh, yeah. And then he, he goes to the statue, and the music starts building, and it's getting all serious and intense, and he's trying to pour the sand out or something and all around the statue and like what are you doing and then he goes to pick it up and oh it's a weight balance thing but he got it wrong because then all hell broke loose and everything started to cave in and they had to run for it you know what's interesting about the inspiration for this whole opening sequence what do you think george lucas and steven spielberg experienced that before well i mean i've seen a lot of that in skyrim uh, but that wasn't around in 1981, I don't think. So, you know, I have no idea. Well, they actually got it from Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck uh, comic books back in the 50s. Almost some of the exact same things happen. <laughs> that's that's really funny. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder why Indy wasn't just wearing a shirt with no pants the whole movie. That would have been a very different movie with a very different rating. That's true, but come on, Donald Duckin, you know. True, but then, you know, could we really understand Harrison Ford through the whole thing? Oh, that's a good point. But you bringing up uh, Skyrim reminds me of not just that, but we've experienced a lot of things like that in our D&D &D games. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the porter double-crosses him and runs off with the statue and then forgets 
to stay out of the light. And now we see him on the spikes after Indy catches up with him. And that boulder trap. Oh, man, we've done that. I know we've done that in our D&D games. But it's funny because, you know, the, our DM would be like, hey, you know, like in Indiana Jones when he's running from the boulder. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about, except I, I didn't. I do now, though. So that's cool. How big do you think that boulder was? Uh, Really freaking big? 22 feet in diameter. Wow. Yeah, it was made of fiberglass. So it wouldn't have killed him if it had caught up with him. Uh, well, I guess that depends on how you look at it. Steven Spielberg was so impressed with Norman Reynolds, the production designer, that he actually let it roll an extra 50 feet, which, you know, Harrison Ford actually outran it. Wait, that, you mean it wasn't a stunt double? No, he actually did a lot of his own stunts in this movie. He had outrun it 10 times because they shot it twice from five different angles. Sounds like a good day of cardio. Yeah, except he stumbled once. They thought it looked natural, though, so they left it in the film. Well, I mean, who's not going to, like, you're running through a dark and spooky cave. How, when are you going to, who's not going to stumble? I guess that's true. But, you know, he makes it out alive. That's true. Of course, then we meet Belloc. Oh, yeah. The on-again, off-again French accent villain. Yeah. Poor Paul Freeman. He never really got his career taken off. He was never big time anywhere else. In fact, there was a British TV show called Pointless where they asked 100 people to name an actor from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and uh, no one named Paul Freeman. Damn. Talk about your one-hit wonders. Seriously. <laughs> but then we uh, move on to your uh, snake on a plane. Oh, yeah. What kind of snake was that? Some kind of python. I'm not sure if it was a bow constrictor or something similar to that. It was a big freaking snake, though. Oh, yeah. it's It really, really was. But you know what I like about the plane there, actually? Hmm. There's uh, two references to Star Wars in it. So on the side of the plane, the uh, letters on it are OB-CPO, so references to Obi-Wan Kenobi and C-3PO. Nice. But there's also a sound reference. The sound of the plane starting is the exact same sound they used for uh, when Han Solo, the Millennium Falcon, uh, the hyperdrive would fail. <laughs> That's awesome. So since you brought up Star Wars, didn't you tell me once that uh, Harrison Ford wasn't the first pick for Han Solo? No, actually, they couldn't figure out anybody for the role. He was just working as a, an actor to read against. So he kept reading the parts of Han Solo, but George Lucas was afraid of getting the reputation for using the same person all the time, like Martin Scorsese does with uh, casting Robert De Niro all the time. But eventually the casting director just uh, said, hey, that's the guy you want. And so he got cast as uh, Han Solo. But Indiana Jones, he wasn't supposed to have that role either. Oh, really? Yeah, it was originally uh, supposed to be Tom Selleck. At least that was George Lucas's first choice. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't available because of having to do Magnum P.I. Although it's really funny, the South American stuff was shot in Hawaii and Tom Selleck was in Hawaii at the time, waiting for Magnum P.I. to shoot. So he was there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, what a way to get disappointed. You're like, I could be doing that movie. Well, if you're going to be disappointed, uh, I can't think of a better place to be disappointed in than Hawaii. Now, how do you think that mustache would have done with the ladies in the next scene? Because we find out that Indy is a bit of a ladies' man when he's teaching his class. I don't know how I would have felt about Indy having a mustache. 
I think the uh, baby face that Harrison Ford added to the role is kind of what the ladies were liking in his uh, archaeology class. Oh, yeah, because what was it, the first three, four rows of his class were all women? Almost all of them, yeah. And then you had that one that wrote, love you on her eyelids. That was funny because you could tell that that threw him off. He's like, you saw that? He's like, oh, what? Yeah. You know, they also, uh, in the later scene after uh, Brody comes back to tell him, hey, you know, they want you to go after uh, the Ark. He's wearing a robe. And uh, the story goes that he was supposed to be entertaining a co-ed in the other room. Oh, Probably the eyelid girl. It's entirely possible. It's not technically canonical because it only like appears in the novel, but him being a playboy was actually sort of originally George Lucas's idea for the character. But Steven Spielberg kind of stood up to him and said, you know, I I don't think uh, he should be kind of a 007 playboy. That's strange because he still comes across as a playboy. Yeah, he he really kind of does, especially when uh, we learn a little bit more about Marion. Yes, I remember the conversation that they're having with the, the two guys from whatever intelligence agency, and they bring up this new name, Ravenwood, and all of a sudden, there's a mention of Marion, and like, well, who's Marion? Marion Ravenwood, our no-nonsense heroine, played by Karen Allen. Yeah, it is kind of funny. You can tell right away that she's not going to be your typical Scarlet O'Hare, damsel in distress. The first thing you see her doing is beating a dude in a drinking contest. Oh, yeah. You know, and then just a couple uh, minutes later when we get Indy coming in for the first time, she just punches him square in the face. Oh, right, just... <laughs> That was quite a shot. You know, Karen Allen actually had to fight with Steven Spielberg about her character. She wanted her to be a much stronger character, and he was very much, uh, well, she's a damsel in distress, and Karen Allen wouldn't have it. That's good for her, because granted I wasn't alive in the 80s or the 30s, I can't imagine that that's your typical woman for either time period. No, not at all. I mean, by today's standards, she's still kind of damsel in distressy, but for the time, you know, it really stood out. Right. When you take into account the history of her character, too, she was drug around by her father all over the world. And in the script, we find out that her father, Abner, which we hear about in the earlier uh, Nazi communique, he actually uh, died in an avalanche. And that's how she got uh, stuck in Nepal. And then 10 years later, in walks an ex-boyfriend? Yeah. So there's something interesting about that. There's a 10-year age difference between them in the script. She's 25, and he's supposed to be 35. Really? And so if you listen to the line about they had a relationship 10 years ago, she would have been 15. Okay. One, sketchy. Two, gross. I mean, I have teenagers. They smell funny. What's <laughs> up with that? You know, I don't think that's the gross part. I know, but still. True. But, you know, it was almost worse. So you could have thought that maybe they gave the ages and the line and they didn't give any thought about it. But we actually have transcripts from the script development. And when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Lawrence Kasdan were working it out, they originally talked about her being as young as 12 when they had the relationship. Okay, that would have been a—I mean, it's still bad, but that would have been worse. Yeah, Steven Spielberg said, hey, guys, that's a little too far. I understand you want to make it look like he's not as nice a guy, but that would have been too much. That would have been way too much. I mean, like I said, I have two teenagers of my own, and 
I, I would not be very happy with them dating somebody in their middle 20s. Apparently, like her father, was not very happy. Oh, no, not at all. Abner Ravenwood, you know, was mentioned in that communique. And there's a popular fan theory that the name was mentioned only because the Nazis needed to be able to figure out where he was. And they thought that if Indy found out, he would go looking for him. That's a good point. I mean, and it would make sense with that spy that was on the plane. I mean, the guy just looking over the Hitler magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the magazine that had an article about some of Hitler's paintings in it. But I always think it's interesting about the plane scenes and everything like that. Like, I've never had that kind of room on a plane. I mean, have you? No, never. <laughs> and I've I... never been offered free champagne either. No, I, I've never been offered free alcohol either. You know, the interesting thing about those plane scenes is they lead to those famous travel scenes uh, with the plane overlaid on the map. Oh, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool how they did that. There's some interesting errors that happen because of that related to the date the movie is supposed to take place. There's countries that appear that don't exist, like Thailand's on the map, but it was Siam at the time. <laughs> Oops. Yep. And then um, the Golden Gate Bridges scene completed, but it actually wasn't finished for a whole year after the movie oh, wow. uh, was supposed to take place. But talking about that alcohol... There was a lot of alcohol being splashed around in that next fight scene that we see. Oh, that was, yeah, that was a pretty cool fight scene. Uh, There's a lot of fire. I'm sure that couldn't have been easy to shoot. Oh, no, it took them two whole weeks to shoot that scene. That doesn't surprise me. You know, there's a few interesting things that happen with the guns that are being used in that. So Indy, at one point, was supposed to go and run out of ammo and grab his backup pistol, but you actually see him switch back and forth because of the way they edited the shots together. Wait, you mean this wasn't going to be another nobody ever runs out of ammo movie? You know, you still get some of those scenes that seem like, at what point are they going to reload? But yeah, in that scene, they were he wasn't supposed to, but instead he just magically switches back and forth between his guns. That's in the script. I suppose so. You know, there's sort of a, a side actor in this that you might be interested in. He was a British professional wrestler named Pat Roach. Oh, yeah, I know about it. I, I, I've heard of him. Yeah, he was the giant Sherpa that gets uh, killed and left for dead inside the uh, oh, burning bar. You know, this is actually the first time he dies in the film. He actually dies later on. We'll talk about that. <laughs> I didn't see any zombies in this movie. No, no zombies. Although, you want to hear something weird. Okay, so what I think is the most memorable villain in the film is actually the Gestapo agent. Oh, yeah, yeah. You never hear his name in it, but he is, in the script, his name is uh, Todd, or Todd, if you want to speak like an American, which is the German word for death. How fitting. But he looks intentionally like Heinrich Himmler with the receded hairline and round glasses. Mm. But original concept art of him actually had him with a mechanical arm that doubled as a machine gun, and he had an antenna coming out of his head. <laughs> Nothing is too much for George Lucas. <laughs> it's kind of funny because actually it's George Lucas who decided it was too far-fetched. Oh, wow. That's kind of shocking. But I'm sure he was like, oh, hey, I can put this guy in Star Wars. Oh, yeah. You could probably imagine him being in there. In fact, the description makes me think of Boba Fett with the, the little antenna coming off his helmet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of does. But this Todd guy, he was really after this amulet. I mean, this amulet that Indy walks in and says, hey, it's worthless, but 
I'll give you $3,000 for it, and then I'll disappear again. Oh, yeah. You know, that $3,000, it's a lot of money to me today. But if you adjust for inflation, back in 81, it would have been like 19000 Oh, damn. And today it would be like 55000 So, you know, a totally worthless amulet. Totally worthless. Not at all. <sighs> Starting to show a little bit more of his scoundrel side. Oh, yeah. I guess uh, Harrison Ford kind of got a bit of a reputation playing scoundrels, at least in the late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> you know, talking about Todd's dedication to that getting that medallion, he burns the hell out of his hand. Oh, yeah, he does. But it's funny, you know, in the later scene, kind of we're jumping ahead here, you know, we wonder how the Nazis got a copy of the medallion, and we see that it's the scar that Todd got on his hand, but... The scar's wrong. Really? Yeah, it's actually upside down, and he was supposed to burn his fingers, but, you know, when we see the scar, his fingers aren't burned at all. Oh, yeah, that... How many times do you have to watch a movie to pick stuff up like that? Oh, um, probably hundreds. <laughs> but when you watch movies a lot, especially when you watch the same movie a bunch of times, you start to fall in love with, with side characters and actors that play smaller parts. And in this next scene in Cairo, we actually get to see one of my favorite actors, John Rhys Davies. Who? Salah. Oh, Gimli. Yes, Gimli. It's like the only movies you know him from. Well, I mean, he's also the voice of Treebeard. Yes, same movies. Yeah, I, I, but still. And he was in Sliders, that TV show from the late 90s. That's true. Also from uh, Star Trek Voyager. Who was he in Star Trek Voyager? I don't know. I just Googled it like... 30 seconds ago because I knew you'd make fun of me for not knowing what else he was in. Well, now you've got me, like, looking bad. <laughs> I have to redo this. No way. Leave it in. It's, it's, it's funny. No fair bringing up Voyager. I slept through most of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Moving on. Moving yes, on. Yes. Moving on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you know that John Rhys Davies wasn't originally supposed to play the role. It was actually supposed to be Danny DeVito. Oh, God, that would have been horrible. I don't know if I would have been able to take that character seriously. There's actually a movie, Romancing the Stone, that's sort of a tribute to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, is it going to be on the list? Yes, it's on the list. Oh, okay. Danny DeVito actually plays second fiddle to Michael Douglas in that film. Oh, all right. But John Rice davies when he came into audition, he didn't think he was going to be able to get the part because it, the script described him as being a five-foot-tall, skinny Egyptian. Oh, oh, <laughs> he's not that. No, not even close. But then neither is Danny DeVito. Well, he's closer to the five-foot mark. Anyway, you know, John Rice davies had to go through a lot for this role. When they were shooting in Tunisia, which is where all the Egyptian stuff was shot, it was really, really hot, uh, which was bad enough. But him, amongst many others, got sick. And there was a scene where he was supposed to be confronted by a Nazi and uh, required him to bend down. And uh, he sort of soiled himself. Oh, that sucks. That poor guy. Yeah. Well, that scene didn't make it into the movie. That's a good thing. True. Yeah. Like I said, everybody was sick. Except for uh, Steven Spielberg. Uh, really? Yeah. They they think it was probably because he packed his own food, which was mostly a bunch of SpaghettiOs. That's disgusting. Wait, I like SpaghettiOs. What? So there's two of you, you and Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Two people left that like SpaghettiOs. What's wrong with that? Uh, nothing. Just saying. Gross. Also entering in this scene is one of the cutest characters in the movie. 
the little monkey. Yeah, cute little monkey. One of the funny scenes with him in it, uh, of course, is where he's giving a little Zeke Heil salute. Yeah. That was actually a second unit shot that George Lucas actually shot. But it's one of Steven Spielberg's favorite scenes in the movie. Really? Uh, yeah. It was kind of interesting because they uh, had taught the monkey how to do the salute. Mm-hmm. But on the day of the shooting, he wouldn't do it. Good for him. I guess that's true. Monkey's got to have morals, right? That's right. So the way they got him to do it is they dangle the grape from a string just out of frame, and the shot in the movie is him reaching for the grape. <laughs> I hope they gave it to him eventually. I don't know. You would think he would earned it. Right? But, yeah, the voice of the monkey wasn't actually uh, the monkey, of course. It wasn't? There, no. There was a voice actor by the name of Frank Welker who provided the voice for that. Oh. Actually, you might know him from another movie I know you've seen. Which one? Aladdin. Oh, I knew it sounded familiar. Yeah, he was uh, the voice of Abu. That's crazy. You know, I always thought all the monkeys in all the movies sounded the same. Now I know why. Yeah, I guess uh, Frank Welker is why. Do you ever notice how uh, these monkeys are always getting everybody in trouble? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's because of the monkey that, you know, Marion gets caught. Yep, had to stand on the basket and be like, hey, she's over here, she's over here. And that's all part of that crazy chase through Cairo. Yeah, that whole thing was pretty comical. The guys carrying her in the basket, trying to get through the crowds and the streets, and then Indy chasing after them. It's like, oh, which way did she go now? Which way did they go? Until he runs into this guy who pulls out a sword and starts doing all this crazy crap where he's twirling it over here. And he looks really badass and... Then one of the funniest things, I think, from that whole movie happens, and Indiana Jones just pulls his gun and shoots him. Like, why am I going to waste my time with you? Yeah, uh, never bring a uh, knife to a gunfight, I guess. Apparently, that guy didn't know that. That is one of those famous scenes where most people know they were actually supposed to have a fight sequence. Really? Yeah, there's actually uh, behind-the-scenes footage of them practicing. But, like I said before, on the day, everyone was so sick... You know, Harrison Ford was supposed to use his whip to pull the sword out of the guy's hand, and he just couldn't do it. So he looks to Steven's like, can I just shoot the sucker? And Steven's <laughs> like, sure, go ahead. Well, Let's I mean, shoot that's, it. That's more Indiana Jones than messing with a guy with a big-ass sword. Oh, yeah. You know, there actually is another uh, sort of goof, a failed stunt in this scene. Really? Yeah. So near the end of it where uh, Andy shoots the guy driving the truck, and it tips over. Yes. It was actually supposed to flip over. Oh. Yeah, they do that by uh, packing a bunch of explosives behind, like, a telephone pole, and they blow it out the bottom, and it causes it to flip. Oh, wow, I never knew that. Unfortunately, it didn't have enough explosives in it, so it sort of just tipped on its side. Yeah. And they didn't have time to do any retakes of it, so they just left it like that in the movie. Well, I'm guessing that those trucks are pretty expensive, too, and buying all that explosives... Definitely, definitely. It's got to be very expensive. Although, I have to say, I thought it was hilarious when they show the back side of the truck and you see inside it looks like an Acme warehouse filled with bombs and stuff. Oh, I know. Where's Wiley Coyote? I don't know. He's probably somewhere after the Roadrunner or, you know, falling off a cliff somewhere. It's sad, though, because, you know, this is the scene where Marion dies. Oh, yes. Quote, unquote, dies. Yes, yes. I didn't believe it for a second. No? No. Well, you know. It all works out in the end. But before we know that, it really affects Indy. It does. He believed it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, he goes to the bar and just starts drinking. 
Yeah, he does. And that's where he gets confronted by a couple of thugs and Belloc. So watching that scene really kind of makes you think about the kind of character Indy really is. It really does. It reinforces some ideas that have only somewhat come across up until now and makes you examine who he is and his methods. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's a grave robber. Totally. I mean, how many people does he kill in the name of archaeology? Exactly. But in all fairness, does anybody really care that he's killing Nazis? Well, I guess not. But he doesn't seem to care too much for his porters. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. And then when he gets back, he offers to tell Brody about the, you know, adventure he had. And Brody's like, no, 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 no. I'm sure you follow all the rules. More kind of implying that, you know, the ends justify the means, so I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, exactly. Brody doesn't want the sordid details. No, definitely not. And we've already talked about how uh, Indy has issues with women, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's true. Especially dating a 15-year-old when he's 25. You know, that's not the only character discussion they had about making him a darker character. Uh, Spielberg actually wanted him to be an alcoholic. Really? Yeah, but as script development went on, the later versions, that kind of worked itself out. So this scene of him drinking after Marion supposedly dies is kind of all that's left of it. Yeah, I mean, the only other time we see him drinking in the whole movie is in the scene where Brody comes to tell him they want him to go look for the Ark and they share a glass of wine or whatever. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that Belloc, he says, I'm just a shadowy reflection of you. And Belloc's got a thing about women as well. I mean, it's all focused on Marion, but he really kind of wants to treat her as property. Right, because as we find out later, Belloc actually has Marion. And we find that out when Indy finds her. And this leads into more questions about his character, because instead of rescuing her and them escaping, he has to find the Well of Souls. And he has to leave her there so he doesn't get caught. Yeah, it makes you kind of go, wow, I guess she's just a a pawn in his game. Exactly. I mean, what kind of hero is that? Now, we're not trying to sour you on our hero, Indy. I mean, in the end, he does redeem himself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not trying to cancel Indiana Jones or whatever. I'm just saying, he's a bit of a scoundrel. And no matter what he's done, we see through the entire movie that Belloc is worse. You know, that whole scene between Belloc and Marion when it's revealed that she's still alive, that entire thing was actually improvised. Was it really? Yeah, when they wrote the script, she was supposed to be in a fancy dress for the Well of Souls scene, but they didn't write in when she would change. So they came up with that scene. Did they uh, improvise the part where he's staring at her through the mirror, spying on her? Oh, probably. There's another funny thing in that scene that you can catch. He uh, claims that the bottle of alcohol she asked about is his family label. But if you watch it closely, you'll notice that the label's actually in Arabic. (laughs) I did not see that. Yeah, you catch all sorts of things like that when you watch a movie way too many times. (laughs) In fact, we're going to get a few more of them in this next scene. Let's talk about Snakes MJ. Do you think anybody will get that reference? Let's talk about you and me. (laughs) Let's talk about snakes. That's right. (laughs) That was a lot of snakes. (laughs) That sure was. 7,000 of them. 7,000? Yeah. They were originally going to use mechanical snakes, but it was decided it would look too fake, so they used real ones. Those were all real snakes. Well, not technically. So the producers, they scoured 
every pet shop they could find in London and South England to get every snake they could get their hands on. So a lot of the snakes are actually from other regions of the world, and a lot of them are actually uh, legless lizards, which you can tell if you look for the ear holes. Oh, wow. That's, I did not notice that. But as it turned out, while Steven Spielberg was watching them put all the snakes out, uh, it was so many of them. Even though he's not afraid of snakes, it made him queasy. I'm sure it did. That's a that's a lot of creepy crawly blue. Even so, he didn't think that was enough. So he actually had them cut up a bunch of lengths of hose and fill in the blanks with those. Nice. <laughs> so there were still fake snakes. Okay, okay. Still, 7,000. I'm surprised that all the actors were willing to work with that many live snakes. Well, not everybody was. Karen Allen's stunt double actually uh, refused to work uh, standing amongst the snakes. So Steven Spielberg asked the snake handler, Stephen Edge, whether he'd be willing to shave his legs and put on a dress. <laughs> so when uh, Marion's hanging from the uh, statue and her legs are hanging around the snakes, that's actually him. Oh, wow. <laughs> I hope he got hazard pay. You would hope so, considering that, you know, you had poisonous cobras on set. Right. The scene where uh, Indy's face-to-face with the uh, cobra, the only thing separating the two of them was a piece of glass. Oh, that's... I couldn't do that. Yeah, in fact, in the original cut of the film that you saw in theaters and such, you could actually see the cobra spray venom on the glass. Oh. That's been since edited out of newer versions, but it used to be there. That's just... I could not do that at all. You know, there was one fatality on set. Oh, no. One of the uh, pythons got bit by a cobra. What? Snake on snake crime. That's not cool. No, but there was uh, also snake on uh, human crime. One of the pythons actually bit the first assistant director, uh, David Tomlin. Ouch. Yeah, it wouldn't let go either. So he asked one of the uh, hands on set to whip the snake to make him let go. Is that how you make a snake let go? Apparently, it worked. Jeez, ow. though he needed medical attention, the python was not injured. Oh, well, I mean, that's what matters. What's funny is, is, okay, so uh, the well soul scene was actually shot on the same set that was used for the Outlook Hotel in The Shining that was shot a year earlier by Stanley Kubrick. Oh, yeah. I remember you mentioning that when we put it on the list. Yes, another movie on the list. So his daughter, Vivian, actually showed up on set. And she thought that the snakes were uh, being treated unfairly. So she reported it to the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And it shut down uh, a shooting for a whole day while they were investigating. Oh, wow. I'm sure that thrilled the people handing out the money. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I mean, because in the film world, you pay people whether they're working or not. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing about the snakes is actually the sounds. So the sound engineer, Ben Burt, He actually created those sounds of them slithering, putting his fingers into a cheese danish, and then augmenting (laughs) it with the sound of a sponge over the grip tape on a skateboard. I might have to try that. That sounds really inventive. That wasn't the only inventive uh, sound engineering trick. Really? Yeah. The lid coming off of the arc, that big heavy sound, was actually just Ben Burt's toilet lid being slid off. (laughs) I thought that sounded familiar. Yes, we've all had that uh, toilet that won't flush. Right. Now, here's another Easter egg moment. So when they actually, when Indy first approaches the Ark there, if you look in the background on the wall, there's actually an image of R2-D2 and C-3PO. What? That's not the only place in the scene. There's also a golden pillar where they appear. Really? (laughs) Why? I mean, I understand George Lucas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. But come on, man. 
I mean, what? The next thing you're going to tell me is that the mummies in the next bit were like stormtroopers or something. Well, a lot of stormtroopers died, so you never know. I mean, well, that's true. But in Egypt? Okay, fair enough. The mummies, uh, you know, to me, some of those looked a little fresh. They did. That was really just spine tingling, like, oh, my God. Yeah, that whole them coming to life sort of thing. I mean, they weren't coming to life, but they were kind of jumping at her. Right. From my experience of working on films, usually the way they do something like that is there's guys just out of scene that are making them kind of move and that sort of thing. (laughs) Well, they did a good job. Don't you think it's funny, though, that right after they get out of there, they literally have to kick one stone out and Uh, they're outside? I know. How did the Germans not find that? I mean, I know Nazis aren't very bright, but... Well, it's true. I mean, did you happen to see that plane they planned to fly in? Oh, that thing. So that wasn't an actual uh, plane there. It was uh, never real. Norman Reynolds actually designed it for the film based on some... German flying wing designs from the time. Oh, wow. And they built it from scratch or just modified something? I'm pretty sure it was built mostly from scratch. I mean, obviously it had some working parts, but the wheels were real, which unfortunately Harrison Ford found out. Oh. Yeah, while they were doing the fight scene, which, by the way, was completely improvised. Really? Yeah, you can actually see, uh, I think it's when Harrison gets punched at one point. Uh, He turns his head the wrong way. (laughs) But during the fight scene, one of the tires runs over his knee. Oh, jeez. Yeah, he was lucky. The hot Tunisian sun softened the rubber enough that instead of crushing the bone, he only tore some ligaments. Oh, man, that still hurts. Yep, but, you know, he's a tough guy. He refused to submit to the Tunisian uh, healthcare system, so he just wrapped ice around his knee and carried on. Oh, wow. That is super tough. I mean, that's dedication to your craft, too. It very much is. You know, that guy that he had the fight with could not have possibly fought that well if he hadn't taken his shirt off first. I know. Isn't that such a trope? Right? (laughs) No, here, I'm going to take my shirt off. But you know who that is, right? Who's that? That's our man, Pat Roach, again. Oh, oh, so, oh. So, uh, propeller to the face is the second way he dies. That's correct. Oof. He's actually uh, Steven Spielberg's kind of go-to guy anytime he needs an O for ogre or, you know, just somebody big and and imposing. Oh, nice. I'll bet that was a lucrative career for him. Yeah, I would imagine it probably was. You know, that plane is also dangerous once Marion got behind the machine gun and just started mowing people down. Seriously, it's actually because of this scene that it's possible Marion actually killed more people than Indy did. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Indy kills intentionally eight people in the film, a few more by accident or because he doesn't do something. But Marion shoots the guy in the bar. Mm-hmm. And then when the truck pulls up filled with the German soldiers, she mows down like seven of them and probably more than that, actually. So there's a good chance that, you know, she's a better killer than India is. <laughs> That's awesome. Something I thought fu- was funny, though. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this in one of the previous scenes when Belloc and Marion are in the tent. Right. In that scene, there's this big storm raging outside. Like you got the thunder and lightning. And while they're trying to open the well of souls, you see the lightning, you hear the thunder. And it's just like it's going to be this huge storm in the tent. Nothing. And then that's right. When we're here, Marion is firing a machine gun, an airplane machine gun. Right. And the the main bad guys, Belloc and 
Colonel Clink are sitting over there like they can't hear anything until the plane explodes. And then they're like, oh, wow, something's going on over there. And they're what, a couple hundred feet away? Something like that. But like we said, the Germans aren't too bright. Oh, that's true. Of course, the plane exploding ruins their plans to fly the Ark out, which leads us to our next action sequence. Yeah, where we get there when one horsepower overtakes several hundred horsepower. Yeah, the desert chase sequence took five weeks to shoot for only six minutes of screen time. Yeah, I can see that. There was a lot of high-level stunts going on that probably took quite a few tries. Yeah, you would imagine so. In fact, all three of Harrison Ford's stunt doubles show up in this scene. You've got Vic Armstrong, who was the guy riding the horse. Martin Grace was actually used in the falling statue scene in The Well of Souls. And Terry Leonard was the one that was pulled under the truck and some of the time when he was being pulled behind the truck. Oh, wow. Um, The funny thing about it is, is that Indy actually dispatches all three of them in the scene. So (laughs) Terry Leonard was the driver who gets punched in the face and gets knocked out. And then uh, Vic Armstrong and Martin Grace were a couple of Germans hanging off the side of the truck that get knocked off. Oh, I mean, at least they had it easy. I guess so. I mean, I don't know (laughs) being thrown from a truck is easy, but okay. Well, yeah. And there was some anti-physics scene there where, like, they're getting thrown off and they actually roll backwards instead of forwards. I noticed that. That was really funny. I think they do that in all movies, though. Yeah, well, you know, it's for safety's sake. But, you know, that's not the only kind of flub that happened in this scene. Really? You actually had, um, so, when Indy's finally taken over the truck and he's driving, the passenger side of the windshield's broken out. Yeah. But then when Indy gets thrown through it, it's a solid windshield. Yeah, I noticed that. And it was the really cool glass-breaking sound. And I forgot that it that the windshield had already been broken out. Yeah, I, I'm curious if they shot that in a different order and it just happened that way. But, you know, <laughs> maybe it was just for effect. Maybe. But, of course, that leads us to the scene where, you know, he's hanging off the front and then Indy gets drugged underneath. Oh, yeah. And that was crazy. That was probably the, the best stunt of that sequence. Mm-hmm. And that, like I said, that was performed by uh, Terry Leonard. Mm-hmm. Now, the stunt itself is a uh, tribute to John Ford's stagecoach, where they did that scene back in 1939. Oh, okay. And Terry Leonard actually attempted the stunt uh, a year earlier in Legend of the Lone Ranger, but failed to pull it off. So he was really happy that he was able to, to do it in this scene. That's cool. I, I, you know, you got to get yourself right. Boost your confidence. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, these guys, they, they mark themselves in their career based on, you know, the, the stunts they pull off. Yeah. Some of the preparation work they did for it is so the, the truck is actually built higher up to give him more room to pass underneath. And then there's actually a trough dug in the middle of the road so that he uh, is kind of laying down in it. So if you watch real close, you'll notice those. You know, he did look kind of low. And I was thinking, man, how is he not skimming along the ground and getting all kinds of road rash for... I imagine Lack of a better term. I would imagine there was still some road rash, but you want to talk about some injuries there. So some of the scenes where Indy's being actually when he's pulled back and being pulled along is actually Harrison Ford. Really? Yeah, and he uh, bruised some ribs while he was pulling that scene off. Oh, that. I know that that hurts. You know, he was asked whether or not he was worried about the uh, scene, and he's like, eh, not really. I mean, if it were dangerous, they probably would have filmed more of the uh, film first. <laughs> What a trooper. <laughs> well, you know, he, he can't be shown up by stunt doubles. Oh, no, no. He's I'm, an action star. I'm Harrison Ford. You know, that's not the only pain that was had in this scene. Yeah. So the producers wanted to keep the on-screen blood down to a minimum, so oh. they didn't want them to use liquid blood in the scene. 
So instead, they filled the squibs with a red powder. Okay. Unfortunately, the only red powder they could come up with was cayenne pepper. Oh, oh, God. No, why? Well, you know, if you want to be a stuntman, I guess you have to have a burning desire for it. <laughs> okay, that was terrible. But still, cayenne pepper, why? Yeah, there was a lot of suffering uh, for the stuntmen in that one. Oh. You know, the other cool thing about this scene, this is where we get our Wilhelm scream. Wilhelm scream. Yeah, you know the scream. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it happens when one of the uh, Germans gets thrown out the back of the truck. But the Wilhelm scream is used in, like, hundreds of movies. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's used in all the Star Wars films, all the Indiana Jones films, westerns, all sorts of things. Oh, wow. It originally came from a 1951 movie called Distant Drums, but it gets its name from the character Private Wilhelm from The Charge at Feather River from 1953. Uh, he gets shot in the leg by an arrow and lets out the scream. Oh, okay. But an interesting fact about it is is that it's believed that the voice actor who did it was Sheb Wooley, which you know what he's famous for. No, I don't. He's most famous for uh, singing the song The Purple People Eater. Oh, that's—I never knew that that was that guy's name. Kind of fitting. Kind of. I also noticed that there was some pretty good driving going on, like— a, you know, maybe not the guys who drove off the cliff, but there was some pretty cool stunt driving going on. Yeah, I always wondered, you know, where that cliff came from. You know, you're just out in the middle of the desert, suddenly cliff. You're right? The other thing, too, about the uh, random things in the desert. So eventually there are some trees, but at one point they're supposed to be out in the middle of the desert and there's nothing around. But you can clearly see trees reflected in the windshield. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to that, but cool. You know, then finally they get they get away and they get to Cairo. Right. And I think it's funny the way that somehow everyone in Cairo knows they're running from the Germans and they need to hide the truck. So they all quickly hide the truck and the Germans come pulling up and the uh, couple guys come up trying to sell the Germans melons. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But yeah, how did they how did Sala and Marion beat them there? I You know, they, they took off. They had to sit there and, uh, you know, book them uh, passage on that boat. You mean where everybody had a laugh? At his expense because of how beat up he was. Yeah, you could imagine that a lot of people get to know him that way. Yeah. Speaking of things being beaten up, the boat that they were going on, when they originally uh, chose the boat, it was all rusted up and everything like that. It was perfect. And when they showed up to shoot, it had gotten uh, completely repainted. It was looking all new and everything. So uh, Norman Reynolds, the production designer, made them take like a day or two to like completely mess the boat up again. <laughs> they were just trying to do a good thing. <laughs> no, we want the boat to look terrible. <laughs> well, you know, it's supposed to be kind of a pirate smuggling boat. Right, right. That captain, he seemed kind of familiar. Like, I, I swear I've seen him in something else. Oh, you mean Katanga? Yeah. Well, that's George Harris. Okay. Harry Potter. Oh, Kingsley. Yeah. Oh, oh, we are uh, crossing all kinds of fantasy genres here, aren't we? It's true. I mean, fantasy is good. Yeah. We got Harry Potter. We got Lord of the Rings. We've got Star Wars, of course. Very true. Very true. You know, this is where our, our sort of love scene takes place. It is. You know? the, the one love scene of the whole movie. Which, of course, ends with uh, Indy falling asleep. Right? Just... <laughs> She is so frustrated, too. She's like, oh, my God. You know, that was actually um, Steven Spielberg's other favorite scene, the whole, well, where doesn't it hurt? Really? Yeah. You know, there's a funny thing about this whole boat sequence. So Indy takes off his hat. Right. 
And then the Germans show up in their U-boat and raid the whole thing for the Ark. And they can't find Indy or whatever. And then Indy dives off the boat and jumps on the submarine. Yeah. Well, he left his hat behind. Yeah. But somehow his hat shows back up later on and, you know. But, That's right. It does. You know. <laughs> I didn't. I never put that together. Yeah. So, so his hat is supposedly traveling around on the, the Bantu wind now. On the what? The Bantu wind. The name of the boat. Let me guess. Another Star Wars reference? You know, it kind of sounds like it, but it's actually not the case. The Bantu were a group of people, kind of an Iron Age people in Africa, who spread out and spread uh, agriculture around. And uh, now it's a group of languages, including like Zulu and Swahili. Oh, wow. So, that's, that's really cool. I a little mean, bit of history for you. Yeah. That's cool of them to uh, include that kind of stuff. Speaking of history, though, so once they've you know taken the submarine and they go to that sub pen, uh-huh. You know how they came up with that? No. They literally found a subpen from World War II. What? It was they said it was like a pre-made perfect set. It was actually a German submarine pen from World War II. Wow. And it wasn't being used for anything? Well, no. I mean, it hadn't been used since like World War II. That's but, crazy. But speaking of World War II style props, the submarine they used the model for it, uh-huh, was the same model from uh the production of Das Boot that was being shot at the same time. Oh. The funny thing is there, even though the production company rented the model, no one remembered to tell the people on Das Boot that they had borrowed it. So they showed up and their submarine was gone. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. It's a you terrible were... morning when I go outside and my submarine's just missing. <laughs> <laughs> Although you got to wonder how. How did he make it all the way? I mean, granted, I don't know where they were on the boat. I don't know where the submarine went. But how did he stay on the sub that whole time without actually getting into the submarine? That's a good question. My question is, is how in the world did they fit an entire contingent of German infantry as well as the Ark into a submarine? Well, yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> Since on a submarine, normally you share beds. But according to, like, some of the uh, expanded stuff with this story, uh, the novelization and comic books and things, he apparently, like, lashed himself onto the periscope with his whip. <laughs> so that or, you know, he held his breath a really long time. A really long time. Or maybe he's just a great swimmer. I, You know, he got over there pretty fast. That's true. That's for dang, uh, you know, that's for sure. So we get to the pen. And we see Indy beating up a soldier, and all of a sudden, he's trying to put his uniform on, and it's too small. And while he's trying to button his shirt, up walks this other guy who just starts berating him. And you get one of the cartooniest things in this movie where Indy just punches him twice, and all of a sudden, the hat flies up, and he puts it right on his head and goes about his business. It's so true. You know, fortunately for him, the, that second soldier actually had clothes that fit. Yes. Because I could imagine in his tiny little suit when he walks by and bumps into Belloc, Belloc probably would have noticed there was something up with a German soldier, you know, a fat man in a little coat thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably would have noticed. <laughs> you know, but right there is actually where we have that really interesting nod to how much the Germans hated the Jews. With Dietrich explaining how he's uncomfortable with the Jewish ritual. So it seems to me like that is the only scene where they reference how much the Nazis hated and feared the Jews. Yeah, actually, they added this scene in specifically because it hadn't been mentioned throughout the rest of the film. Really? 
Yeah, they wanted to make sure that, you know, especially since they were going after a Jewish artifact, that they actually, you know, acknowledged the Nazis' hatred toward the Jews. They didn't even really do that. I mean, all he said was he's uncomfortable. But then I also think, what if they had opened it in front of Hitler? Would have saved the world a lot of problems. Yeah, considering how uh, the final scene with the uh, opening of the arc goes. Yep. Yeah, definitely. It definitely would have. You know, which makes you question, you know, when Indy's talking about he's going to blow up the arc. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. That was kind of intense. And good on them for having Belloc call his bluff. Yeah, Indy would threaten it. But the reality is, is that he truly does believe that these things should be protected. I mean, that's a difference between him and Belloc. Belloc's in it for the money right. and, and the power that comes with it. Right. And Indy, you know, as much as we talked about him being sort of a grave robber, he does believe that these things belong in a museum. Yes. Funny thing about him trying to blow it up with the uh, bazooka or whatever that was, the RPG. Yeah. Weapons like that weren't even in development in 1936. <laughs> I thought that looked a little advanced. But then again, on the one hand, you have him saying he doesn't care about the arc anymore. All he wants is the girl, which is like, oh, he's growing or, you know, he's he really feels something for Marion now. But then two minutes later, he's lowering the weapon like, no, I'm not going to blow it up. Well, to be fair, Marion was standing right next to it. Oh, that's true. Which I was kind of like, um, are you really going to blow it up with her standing there? Yeah. But in the next scene where they actually open the arc, he really does try to protect her by telling her to keep her eyes closed while chaos ensues. Yeah, you're right. He does his best to try to protect her from whatever those things were. Oh, the the angels or spirits, what they are? You know, it's funny, the don't look in it mm -hmm. is one of the two prohibitions about the arc that actually appear in the Bible. Really? Uh, yeah, don't look in it, don't touch it. Oh. Some of the other things they say, though, throughout the film of it, like leveling mountains and cities and all that kind of thing, none of that's true. It doesn't appear in the Bible at all. <laughs> that's not the only thing. So all the archaeologists talk about that the uh, smashed tablets of the Ten Commandments, the ones that Moses smashed when he came down from the mountain, uh -huh. are what's inside. That's not actually what's supposed to be in there. It's the replacement tablets, which are whole as well as a bowl of manna and Aaron's flowering uh, staff that are all supposed to be in the in the Ark. Oh. You know, what's interesting is the Ark, the way it looks, that's accurate. They took that directly from the description in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the clothing that Belloc wears while he's performing his little uh, ritual really is also directly from the Bible. Wow. So they did try to get some accuracies there. In fact, the, what he's saying is very poorly pronounced Aramaic, but it is actually something that's recited in synagogues when they're uh, bringing out some of the Old Testament stuff. So there's some, you know, relation to history there as well. They did really do their research. I mean, I know they decided to inflate some things and over-exaggerate some things, but good on them for actually putting some real stuff in this. Yeah, you know, they got they got some of that right. Unfortunately, like I said, uh, badly pronounced Aramaic. Yeah. But you want to know what was really bad? The German that was spoken throughout the film. Yeah, I I don't know how much German you speak, but I took German for a year in high school and I didn't recognize any of it. Yeah, some of it is just so horribly pronounced or so completely wrong that when the movie was released in Germany, they had to re redub almost all of it with native German speakers. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> But you brought up the, the spirits or angels that came out. 
it's actually kind of interesting how they created those. Really? So the the appearance of them was done by shooting mannequins underwater in slow motion with a fuzzy lens on the camera. Oh, that's cool. So you get that really ethereal look. And then Ben Burt, the sound designer, created the sounds they make by using synthesized human vocalizations as well as recordings of animal cries from dolphins and sea lions. Oh, wow. And then the the sounds of the sparkling and beams that were recorded. Uh Uh-huh. Those are actually recorded on the old sound gear that was used in the early Frankenstein movies. Oh, nice. I thought, I swear I heard like a TIE fighter or an X-Wing fly by during some of that, but I guess I was wrong. You know, there might have been something in those sound effects as well. So not specifically for this scene, but might have used some of the same techniques on the Star Wars films. (laughs) But speaking about special effects, this scene Almost got the movie an R rating. I can see why. Yeah, specifically when Belloc's head explodes. <laughs> yeah. So the fire that you see in front of his face uh, when it happens wasn't originally there. It was just his head exploding, and they gave it an R rating for that. Really? And so they added in the fire to, to obscure it, and that's how they got their PG rating. Ah. Uh, PG-13 didn't exist yet. Yeah. That comes around because of the second Indiana Jones movie, actually. Oh, but the, the, the way the three antagonists die, Dietrich, Belloc, and Todd, is interesting. So they each had a different way of pulling off the effect of them dying. Mm-hmm. So Belloc, they just took a shotgun to a false head. <laughs> Seems simple enough. Dietrich, his had a hollow model of him, and they sucked all the air out of it. Oh. So he just like sucks in on himself. And then the one I really like is Todd. They took a uh, plaster uh, model of his head covered in gelatin Mm -hmm. and then just uh, put a heat gun to it so it would melt. And (laughs) that, too, was uh, undercranked, so it happened uh, more quickly. Yeah, that was was pretty gory. It was, but, you know, it it gets across the point that this thing is really dangerous. Oh, yeah. That's another funny thing because they're talking about how they they get the Ark and that's going to give them power. But also in the— in the Bible, it talks about it bringing plagues to any enemy armies that get a hold of it. Oh. So it, it plays itself out pretty much how you'd expect it to with the Nazis getting a hold of something like that. But, you know, the Nazis all die and somehow completely disappear. Right. And the Ark closes up and they've rescued it. Yeah. And then we travel to America. Where they're assured that it's going to be studied thoroughly by top men. Top men, huh? Yeah, just a guy in a warehouse wheeling it back to probably collect dust for who knows how long. Yeah, considering everything else in there. Right? You know what I learned from this scene, though? What's that? Where Peter Griffin sent James Woods. I never realized that before. Thanks for reminding me, Tim. You've watched enough Family Guy. You should have remembered that. I know I should have. You know that scene, actually, that the warehouse wasn't anywhere near that big. It was mostly a matte painting. <laughs> Which you can actually see, uh, if you watch carefully, the guy kind of passes translucently over boxes. (laughs) I didn't notice that. That's awesome. So one of the things I think is funny, so the the larger fellow of the two intelligence agents, uh, the actor that plays him is William Hootkins. Okay. But his character's name is Major Eaton. Really? Yeah, which is part of a running joke due to his uh, obese physical traits. So uh, in Star Wars, he was known as Porkins. (laughs) <laughs> and he's also played characters named Dr. Pretzel, uh, Beef, and even Mr. Bowels. Beef. 
I and Mr. Fatty too. Oh, so, wonderful. Yeah, it's been a running joke for <laughs> for a long time. I guess they didn't have fat shaming in the. Uh, it wasn't a thing. In no, the back early then, 80s. not so much. You probably couldn't get away with it today. No. You know that falling scene where Indy comes out and meets Marion on the steps? Yeah. That scene actually was just added in because they realized they hadn't resolved the relationship between the two of them. Oh, that, you know, while the relationship wasn't the story, it was still a big part of the story. So I'm glad they, they added that in. It's true. Although it's kind of funny that she doesn't appear again until the fourth movie. Really? Yeah. So, that brings us to the end of our adventure through Rages of the Lost Ark. What'd you think, Ray? Well, first of all, that song is going to be stuck in my head for days. Yeah, I can tell with all the tapping you were doing. (laughs) So, for all you folks out there, I have a little bit of a fidgeting problem. And sometimes I forget myself and I start tapping, you know, or drumming on this or that. And, well, we've had to re-record a few times and (laughs) he says a few times she gets rather irritated with me sometimes it's like (laughs) every 10 minutes (laughs) i don't know if that's an exaggeration or not but i'm trying so what did you think of the movie though oh yeah uh well let's see um i give it eight out of ten asps very dangerous. Not too bad for a movie that Steven Spielberg said he was shooting as a B-movie. Wow. Was he really? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he was surprised when it did as well as it did. What'd you say, 95 on Rotten Tomatoes? 95 critic, 96 audience score. Oh. So you didn't find it to be too cheesy? Oh, no, it was definitely cheesy. But cheddar, right? Oh, yeah, uh, Tillamook cheddar. The good stuff. The good stuff. Anything specific stand out to you? Well, I really enjoyed all the action of the movie, I think my favorite part was the desert chase scene, especially when Indy's being drugged under the truck. That was really cool. I mean, it had its funny moments, too. Like when Indy pulls out his gun and shoots the guy with the sword. That was good. That really made me laugh. And then, you know, it also had its little bits of romance. Kind of that love-hate relationship between uh, Marion and Indy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not normally the kind of romance that I look for in a movie, but... Uh, We're not talking about those kinds of movies. Oh, right. Yeah, that's good point. But most of all, I can't wait to see the next one. Well, you're going to have to wait on that, because next week, a boxer has to see a girl about a couple turtles. I have no idea what that means. Bye, everybody. Y'all take it easy. We'd like to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Seen It Last. We hope you enjoyed the show because we sure did. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Seen It Last. You can find me at Ray Seen It Last. And you can find me at MJ Seen It Last. Don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe if you would please, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. We'd also like to thank our voice from above, Alex Nevue. Our graphic artist, Mallory Rowley, and our associate producer, Dornob. I'm Ray. And I'm MJ. Tune in next week when another awesome movie will be seen at last.
Da Vinci. What? Leonardo da Vinci. That's who John Rhys Davies played on Voyager. Oh. Okay. 